0: Hey, how's everybody doing this morning? You good? Uh, So-so, seven of you, doing pretty good. Awesome, good. Um, Hey, i tell you what, we had an awesome week here last week. I know it was kind of crazy with the blizzard. And again, worship is always on, but your safety is our number one priority. So if you feel like it's unsafe uh, to come, uh, stay home. That is totally fine. Our West Des Moines campus has the the live streaming service at 11 o'clock, and that's always a good option if you feel unsafe as well. But for those that were here, uh, actually, if you weren't here, we want you to know, um, we had a lot of fun. When, When the snow came, we just canceled the service, and we went outside, and we had a congregational-wide snowball fight. So I'm sorry if you weren't here last week. You missed out on that. Shh, it be our secret. Um, that, no, that didn't really happen, but uh, that would be fun. We should try that sometime. That, that would be fun. Uh, again, if you're, if you're new this morning, uh, and if this is your first time here, maybe you've just been coming for a while, and you're just kind of feeling things out, and you're saying, you know, what are these guys all about? What's this all about? We really pray that you feel Welcome. We're, we're really nice people once you get to know us uh, here. We're, we're a little crazy sometimes, but that's okay. Um, if you're looking for a perfect church, this is not it. Uh, you're not going to find it. Um, we, just like everybody else this week, have leaks in our roof sometimes too. So uh, that, that happens uh, from time to time. But we have an awesome Savior, and he's the one that makes this a great church. Amen. So we've been traveling through the Gospels, if you're just getting caught up, we're in this, uh, the whole year is really called Back to the Basics, and we're going through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and our first series is called Meet Jesus, and we're digging into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Gospels, and if you if you really strip everything else away, the reason that we're doing this, and, and really the reason that these writers of the gospel wrote these stories of Jesus's ministry on earth, his three years on earth, is to answer this question, who is Jesus? Just maybe not out loud, but just think to yourself, if somebody just came up to you on the street and said, who is Jesus? Maybe more importantly, to you, who is Jesus? How would you answer that? That's what the Gospels are getting at. Some of you, maybe we, we have these preconceived ideas of who we think Jesus is or who we want him to be. The goal of the Gospels is to discover Jesus for who he truly is, to let him come to us on his terms, rather than when the Jesus that we've come up with or the Jesus that uh, we want him to be. And the danger is, when the Jesus that we think he is, and we kind of hold that up to who this man is in Scripture, what happens when those don't line up? What, what happens when this person that you want Jesus to be or you've made him out to be from your church experience, your history, and then you hold it up to Scripture and you say, wait a minute, this isn't the same guy we're talking about. What do you do? And that's why the Gospel of John is so important, and that's where we're going to be at today. Is in, John, as opposed to a lot of the other gospel, well, all the other gospel writers, he's writing this several decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. So John has the advantage. This is the Apostle John. Remember, he spent time with Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. And several decades later, he's reflecting back on this experience that he had of God coming in human form and human flesh to earth. And as opposed to, you know, Matthew, Mark, or Luke are trying to give you every little detail or every little fact and trying to move as quickly as they can and, and get every part of the story in there, John's number one priority is to paint for you a picture of Jesus using the other stories from the other Gospels, remembering, reflecting back on these three years he had with Jesus, and he wants to paint for you a picture of Jesus that is absolutely captivating, of a man that you could not help but want to hang out with because of his irresistible personality. Personality. I don't think about that a lot. It often gets overlooked, but it is really, really really important. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know, maybe you don't think about that when you read scripture, but I'm going to give you a couple ways to think about it. Think about uh, this way. Does anybody else just love burritos? I know you've rarely heard a sermon that transitions from Jesus to burritos, but I just did it. Boom. There it was. Okay. I love burritos. A show of hands. Three of you? Okay. Oh, oh, everybody does. This will be great. Okay. So I'm thinking, this is not a commercial, but I'm thinking like Codoba up the street here, Poncheros, Chipotle, something like that. Um, Some of you that are, you know, burrito junkies, you'd say there's difference. I I just like burritos. Okay. I like big, full burritos. I get the black beans. I get the white rice. I get the flour tortilla, chicken or steak. I mix in the, the, the veggies, the grilled veggies and all that. And then do you put queso in yours? Oh, it really helps. It's not so dry then. You put some queso in. It's really, really good. And one of my favorite things to do is watch the person at the end of the line with their little spoon spork dish thing, whatever they have, trying to fit it all in the burrito and it's like falling out. I'm like, yes, this is amazing. It's like, there's going to be an endless burrito bar in heaven, I think. It's going to be awesome. So I love burritos. I just love what they are. And then there's this thing at the gas station that's supposed to be a burrito. You go to the gas station and you go and you open up the door and it's like, man, I'm on a trip and I got a hankering for a burrito. And that's what, that's what you get. I mean, I love Ronaldo. I'm sure he makes great burritos, but I tried one once. It's not the same thing. It's like this cheap manufactured imitation and it's not this thick. It's like this thick and it's squashed and it's kind of supposed to stick it in the microwave or something like that. It's not the same thing. It's like it's been stripped of its personality like its essence of what makes it, it. Okay, maybe you're not a burrito person. Are you a music person? Do you like music? Okay, everybody, everybody likes music, and we all have songs that we love. I love you too. I, I love, I, especially the Joshua Tree. I think that's one of the best albums ever. I just love that. And you have these songs that you know, and then one day you're walking through the mall or you're sitting waiting at the dentist office or the doctor's office or you're in an elevator, and all of a sudden a different version of that song comes on. So think about it. You all know what U2 is supposed to sound like, right? The real version of it, right? It's something, something like this. You, you, you hear the song. Yeah. See, there you go. Everybody, just kind of you nod your head. You with Everybody you singing now, know. with or without you. There we go. Know. All right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just kind of gets you. You know it's about Jesus, not a woman, right? Okay, anyway, you know the song. That's what it's supposed to be. Bono sings with passion, and there's strain in his voice, and he's rocking out, and the edge is playing guitar. It's real. It's what it truly is supposed to be. And then you're sitting in the doctor's office of the elevator, and you hear something that's kind of it, and you recognize it, but it sounds a little bit more like this. Are you kidding me? Do you know what this is? This is supposed to be with or without you. You, This is real, but it's not real. But you you can buy this on iTunes. You too would be appalled at this. Okay, make it, this is painful. Make it stop. uh, It's like the burrito, but not really, right? It's the song, but not really. It's been manufactured. It's been stripped of its very nature, of its very essence. It's been stripped of its personality. Think about it like this, a little bit closer to home. Why do you love the people that you love, the people that you're close to, your family, your spouse, your closest friends, your relatives? Why do you love them? Why do you know them and trust them? Because of a whole host of traits and characteristics that make up their personality. It's who they are. It's why you love them. It's crazy Uncle Fred does this, and Aunt Sally does this, and that's just kind of the way we are as a family. It's because of their personality. That's what draws you to people. Personality draws us to somebody, so why not Jesus? Now, maybe you've heard a pastor tell you before, you know, Jesus is, you know, strong and faithful and he's the son of God and he's strong and faithful and true and all those things are true. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus was quite possibly hilarious? That he was, oh, I don't know, like an incredible listener? That he was just a joy to be around? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus just might have been, oh, I don't know, the life of the party? Is that the Jesus that you know? One of the greatest tragedies of modern Christianity is that we have stripped God of his personality. And many well, you know, just like the burrito and just like the song, many well-intentioned religious folks throughout the years, because we want to make Jesus safe, because we want Jesus to fit in our nice little Western Christianity, North American, Midwestern boxes Lutheran, even worse than that, right? We try to fit him in here and say, this is what you're supposed to be because of my experiences or who I want you to be. We have stripped Jesus of his personality and what we're left with, unfortunately, is oftentimes something like this. This is creepy, religious, awkward Jesus, okay? I don't know about you, but it's like, peace. You You know, I don't know what he's doing up there, right? This is creepy, and some of you maybe grew up with that on the, the wall in your Sunday school wing in your, in your church, right, with the green carpet. But I look at the Jesus I see in Scripture, and it's not that. Because the Jesus I see in Scripture, people love to hang out with. They loved to be with. Does that guy look like somebody you'd hang out with on a Friday night around town? <laughs> Head out to the East Village and hang out with him? No. Does that guy look like somebody that you could just cry on their shoulder for hours? Tell them exactly what's going on in your life? No, but that's the Jesus we have in Scripture. Jesus came to show us what God is like. The Gospels are so important because we get to see and hear and touch and feel and experience Jesus for ourselves. I want you to hear me say this. The Gospels were not written as a textbook on how you could be a better or moral person, primarily. The Gospels were written so that you could know the same Jesus that these disciples knew and be absolutely captivated by him. Yes, Jesus was fully God. We absolutely believe that. But he was also fully human and he's walked in your shoes. That's why we read the Gospels. The greatest thing in the world is to know and be in love with Jesus Christ. There is nothing better. That's why it's so important to read the Gospels on a regular basis. This is like, when we're looking for Jesus' personality in Scripture, it's like digging for buried treasure. Only when you find this treasure, it is the treasure chest that you open up, and it is the key that unlocks all the other treasures of life. To know Jesus as he truly was is our mission for today. And so, what we're going to do in the time that we have is look at three specific characteristics that Jesus shows us. So, if you have your Bibles, let's open to John chapter 2, and that's where we're going today. If you're there already, John chapter 2, we're just going to start right away there at verse 1. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. On the third day, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can always grab one on your phone, too. I know there, there's the analog version uh, with the paper there, but you can also have a digital one as well. I don't mind that. There's a lot of great Bible apps on your phone. If you haven't discovered that already, you can have God's Word with you wherever you go. So John chapter one, j- chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Oh, bummer. You finally get invited to a party and your mom shows up. Uh, <laughs> Verse two, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, stop right there. I know, we kind of know, some of you maybe were in Sunday school and you're familiar with the story, you know what happens, the whole water, wine deal, but stop, pause here for a second. Two things I want you to know. Number one, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Number one, really smart couple. Whoever's getting married at this wedding in Cana, really smart couple. If you're engaged today, if you're thinking about getting engaged, if you're thinking about getting married, always invite Jesus to your wedding. It's a really good idea, okay? He kind of invented it. Like God, he kind of invented love, right? Invite Jesus to your wedding. And bonus, something might happen like happens later. You never know. Invite Jesus to your wedding. And second of all, Jesus was invited to a wedding, What kind of people do you invite to a wedding reception, like to a party, like stuffy, religious, boring people? No, you invite people to a wedding reception that like to party, that like to hang out, that like to have a good time, that are not going to embarrass you in front of your friends, right? Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And yet I think if you ask a lot of Christians, particularly those that maybe don't know Jesus as well, and they say, would you maybe just take a shot at describing to me Jesus' personality? a lot of their answer is going to be based, unfortunately, on their experience with Christians, which, unfortunately, a lot of it is true, and people's anger towards the church is based on, a lot of times, as Christians are either angry, judgmental, boring, hypocrites, well, stuffy religious people. So Jesus must be a boring, stuffy, religious, judgmental person. And that's sort of the image that we place on Jesus. Yet, I want you to see, there's no record of Jesus walking around this party. And Jesus started to walk around the party when everybody was drinking the wine, saying, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You've had too much to drink. I know what you did last night. I heard the word that you said yesterday, right? <laughs> He's not walking around in his robe or his collar saying, "No," da, 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 and calling out all these people, you're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. He's not doing that. For all we know, all we know Jesus was doing at this wedding was hanging out. Jesus was just hanging out at a party where there was plenty of alcohol to go around? Yeah. Was he participating? All We don't know. But he was there and he was hanging out and he's not walking around and judging and condemning everybody. Jesus was just hanging out. It appears as though, the first attribute I want to highlight for you, Jesus is simply approachable. He went to a lot of weddings. He went to a lot of parties. He went to a lot of dinner parties. If you're keeping score at home, Approachable. Jesus was approachable. And this seems to fit right in with Jesus' personality throughout the rest of the Gospels. Think of the crowd that Jesus often hangs out with. It's the tax collectors, it's the sinners, it's the party animals, it's the people that are probably the wedding crashers of Jesus' day. He loves to go hang out with these people. And when wild and crazy party people get together, it's messy and it's loud and it's usually over good food and drink. And this earned Jesus the reputation. His nickname was friend of sinners. It earned Jesus a reputation that doesn't really seem appropriate for church. Or maybe oftentimes when we're at our worst, we create a church culture that even Jesus himself wouldn't be comfortable in. By the way that we point fingers and by the way that we judge and whatever it is, I I I hope Jesus would feel comfortable here. I think he would. I mean, that's probably our number one priority. It was Jesus' approachability, among many other attributes, that must have made him irresistible to be around. I almost picture, instead of the, you know, stuffy religious guy walking around, calling people out, I almost imagine Jesus at this wedding, just like kind of like leaning back in his chair, putting his feet up and like his arms around a couple people. Are they saved? Are they unsaved? I don't know. He's probably telling them stories and sharing God's love with them and just being with them. And I'm sure he's just looking around. You can see this. Imagine Jesus smiling. Like, somebody tells a joke. Do you think Jesus is like, no, not funny. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> if there's no laughing in church, I need a different job. But um, I, Jesus laughing at a joke and just his arms and just kind of like looking around and smiling like, Here I am with all my lost sheep, and I love them so much. I love them right where they are today, and I love them way too much to leave them where they are. John 3 says, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. These are the people that I want to hang out with. You don't see Jesus spending tons of time at parties with religious people because he knew where the party was at, and that's where the people that he wanted to hang out with. Notice Jesus, nor here, nor anywhere, and I just want to pause and make this clear. Yes, Jesus was there, but nowhere does Jesus affirm drunkenness, okay? Can we just get that out there? Right. That's pretty clear throughout Scripture, and certainly Scripture is clear as you go on that if you personally are tempted with or somebody around you, you could be a stumbling block for them with alcohol. Run as far away from it as you can. But we also got to be really, really careful that we don't legalize, uh, get legalistic about all this kind of stuff, and that we don't, I'm sorry, no pun intended, don't water down the story. It happened. You can't argue with that. There's boundaries, but we don't want to just throw out the story. Before you try to tone down the whole story and make it a bit more appropriate, I'm about to blow your mind. It's really important that you know, like, what's the longest wedding reception you've ever been to? Like, that just drug on and got really, really long. Like, three, four hours, five hours, that would be really tough, unless there's some passionate dancers out there, right? Okay? In Jesus' day, people would get married, and the reception would last five to six days. Okay? Talk about a week off from work. I got to go to a wedding. It's a week, right? Like, seriously, it was long, right? Right? And so Jesus is hanging out, and, and you can imagine that if a wedding goes on for five or six days, Jesus is totally comfortable hanging out with messiness. That's a lot to drink. That's a lot of messy lives and people hanging out. But what you also have to understand is that this is a culture of hospitality. And in a culture of hospitality, if you run out of something, it's shaming. Think about this. If your daughter was getting married, maybe some of you have experienced this, let's say that you just completely forgot to order the food for the dinner reception, okay? Or it didn't come. They just forgot your order and it didn't show up. Can you imagine kind of the guilt and the shame? Here's hundreds of people that are waiting on you to get it right. So that's kind of like wine was in Jesus' day. Like it was one of the main things. It was like Italy, you know, or like wine with everything. This is just what you do culturally there. So this is a potentially very shaming experience for the bride's family. It's going to get all around town, so what do you do? You ask Jesus. So we pick up the story in verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Depending on your translation, mine, the NIV, verse 4 says, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Wait a minute, time out. Did you just read that? Do I need to get my eyes checked? Okay, okay. You just said that Jesus is totally approachable, John. Did you just see how he responded to his mother, of all people? Jesus just turned and looked at his mother and went, woman? (laughs) Now, before you get all freaked out about that, guys, please, please, please do not go home and look at your wife tonight or call your mom on the phone and say, hey, woman. (laughs) And then they ask you, how dare you talk to me that way? Pastor John told me to. Jesus even did it, right? That's not your excuse. Dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper. Jesus' mother Mary is Jewish, and in that culture and that custom to call somebody woman is actually a sign of endearment. The equivalent in the Aramaic now for us would be something similar to dear woman or dear mother. It's a sign of respect and honor, and you should know before you run with that and say how disrespectful of Jesus. The only other time that Jesus calls Mary woman is when he's hanging on the cross. Wedding in Cana, hanging on the cross, telling John, the writer of this gospel, who is looking up at Jesus' suffer on the cross, take care of my mom for me. So please, 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 don't misinterpret this as Jesus being disrespectful. There's no disrespect. And instead of paying attention to what he says to his mom, pay attention to what happens after. It says, Jesus replies, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I'd love uh, to help all of you out with your little party here, and I know the booze has run out, but I actually have three short years to save the world, and that's a really important mission, and I've already told you I need to be about my father's business, so I'm not quite ready to do that. And that would be a perfectly, of anybody to have a legitimate excuse, fine. That would be fine. But watch what happens yet. What happens next, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The Son of God, the most important person in the world, has three short years, and to save the souls of the world, that burden is on his shoulders, and he takes a time out to refill the booze. It's right there. I'm not making this up. Don't water it down. It's real. It really happened. Is this the Jesus you know? This is rather scandalous. What does John, the writer of this gospel, want us to see? I think, first of all, like, I know it's his mother, and when your mother asks you to do something, you should probably do it, but you can come to Jesus with anything. I mean, he's God, and he's sitting there at the party, and I would imagine people are coming up to him, you know, hey, can I have your autograph? Or I don't know what they would say to him, but, you know, hey, Jesus, can I tell you what's going on in my life? We're going through some financial difficulties. I got a problem in my marriage. I can't pay my taxes anymore. I'm really struggling with some fear about the future. And can you just imagine Jesus just sitting down next to you and saying, tell me about it. I got time. Is that the Jesus you know? Approachable. You can come to Jesus with anything. And I know I say this a lot, and I think at the end of every service, I stand up here and I say, we've got prayer partners available. Come on up if you want to be prayed for. And if we have this view of Jesus as approachable, then I wonder why it's so hard for us to just want to pray with somebody else. A lot of people ask me, John, why don't, why don't we have a, a big prayer team in this church? And I said, oh, we do. You're looking at them. There's about 450 of us. They're different services. This is the prayer team. It's you because every single one of you has direct access to Jesus Christ. Some of you, oh, pastor, can you pray for me? I would love to, but you know, David over here is a great prayer, and he would love to pray for you as well. My dream for us as a church is that because we know Jesus is approachable, that coming forward for prayer, or we're really wherever you can pray, wherever we don't have a prayer booth. It's the church. It's the whole building. Um, one of my dreams is that we would get just overwhelmed and that all of you would come forward and that I would deputize all of you as prayer partners. I don't even need to do that. Jesus would do that and you would just start praying for each other. That it would be the most natural thing in the world for you to never leave this building each week without being prayed for. Good, bad, high or low, mountaintop or valley, that it would be as natural and a non-issue for you as stopping and getting some coffee and a donut hole. Donut hole? Talking to the God of the universe that created you. What's more normal for you? What's more natural? And it's not a guilt thing, it's an opportunity thing. That's the Jesus I see in this story. You come talk to me about anything. Don't be afraid to come to Jesus with anything. And I know it's a mom, but then you get these stories about the leper and the blind man and a cripple and a worried father and a rich man, and they're not afraid to come to Jesus with anything. Are you? Are, you, are, you, are there certain things in your life that are off limits? And I think we often put it into two categories. We say, well, I don't pray a lot because, well, one, I don't really know how, and so it seems like my stuff is too small and insignificant for Jesus, or on the other side of it, it's just way too big, and I'm sure that Jesus doesn't have time for my problems. I mean, you got to save the world, and there's natural disasters and war and all this stuff. Why would Jesus care about me? Because he does, because he's here, because he sits next to you at the party and says, tell me about it because he's in the grace business above all else. And when a family at a wedding is about to be shamed because they're running out of wine, Jesus comes through. Jesus rescues them from their guilt and their shame, and that's what he wants to do for you. Jesus has come because he's in the grace business, and business is really good. He's come to rescue you from your guilt and your shame and your past and your fears. He says, whatever's going on, bring it to me. you've you've got a test for school tomorrow, let's pray about it. Grab one of your brothers and sisters and let's pray about it. You just had a grandson or a granddaughter, let's give God praise for it. It's not just the bad thing. Some of us think, oh man, if I go forward to a prayer partner, everybody's gonna say, oh, there they go again. They must have more issues. I hate to break it to you, we all know you have issues already, so just come on up anyway. We all do. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, you've got issues. Just remind them you've got issues. Just tell them, Right? (laughs) You really do. You really do. And that's okay. And that's okay. We all do. We're great sinners, but we have a great Savior, so we come to him. And I think a lot of us sometimes, we, we, we come walking through those doors, and there, you never will see it on the outside, but there's this wall that we come in with. And maybe you've been a part of a church or maybe you've been a part of a church culture in the past where you feel like you have to put this mask or this facade on and it's not really you, but it's the you that you have to put on and the person you have to be at church in order to fit in with all the other religious churchy people. You know, and I think about that and I just think, man, wouldn't it be great if that this was the place that you could be real. That this is the place above all other places you go in your life where you could just be you. Our two-year-old son, Caleb, I caught dancing around the living room, as he often does the other day, but then he started singing. He started singing now, which is, he's probably singing in the nursery right now, and serenading everyone, and he was there in the living room, spinning around, going, let it go, let it go, da 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 -da. let it go, let it go, and I'm like, oh, geez, the girls at daycare are getting to him, right? (laughs) Infiltrated with the evil song. Or I was just thinking about it going, you know, Caleb, you're right. Let it go. Some of you have just been carrying these burdens. Some of you are like, I would just never want to inconvenience somebody with a prayer request. I don't want them to see me like that. I don't want them to try to fix me. Just so you know, nobody up here is going to try to fix you. We're going to listen and we're going to pray for you. Let it go. Let it go your guilt and your shame and your sin, and let's nail it to the cross and have it be done with. You were never meant to carry it. Jesus is approachable, but he's so much more than that. The story is just getting started. We're just discovering the personality of Jesus, and it's going to get even better. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, or our kitchen trash can which is approximately the same size. The kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is about 35, 40, so it's a little bit bigger, but you get the idea. Six big stone heavy jars this size, just to give you the image. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. Now, don't skip over this little detail of the story either. Some of you are like, oh, I know what's going to happen. The miracle's coming, that whole bit. Oh, but you're missing some of the big punch of the story. Did you see what Jesus just asked the servants to do? These are the ceremonial Jewish cleansing jars for the purification rites that you wash your hands and you wash your body in a very specific way, and if you don't do it right, you have to start over, and this is one of the 600 and some laws that they came up with in addition to the laws that God gave them in the Old Testament, and you had to do it just right. I mean, this is a religious relic. This jar... It should be locked up and no ordinary people should touch it because only the priests in the temple can touch this. It's a religious relic and Jesus just asked them to fill it with booze. This is scandalous. What is going on here? What, what kind of a Jesus? Who would do something, take something ordinary and use it for holy purposes? I don't know. The same kind of people that would take a car dealership and worship in it. Whoever would have thought of that? So here's Jesus, and he's doing this, and I don't know, is this the Jesus that you know? Notice how Jesus does it kind of under the radar. He doesn't stand up and say, refills, anybody? No, just just his mom, just this one servant, and just the disciples know. And you ever wonder why Jesus didn't let more people know, specifically this, his first miracle? Can you imagine those stuffy religious people, the Pharisees, saying, did you see what Jesus just did? He filled a religious relic with alcohol, with wine. Let's take him out back and kill him right now. So Jesus is kind of stealth, kind of mission impossible about it. Boom, water into wine. And then he just kind of steps back. And then the story gets even better from there. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing us that the heart of God is not just approachable, but Jesus is highly unconventional. He's highly unconventional. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, verse 8 says. They did so. So the master of the banquet, the guy that's potentially going to be shamed in all of this, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. They called the bridegroom aside and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first. Then the cheaper wine. See, the deal was, when everybody's had a lot to drink, you don't really care how the wine tastes, and so it's just kind of the junky stuff at the bottom of the barrel, and nobody really cares about that, and that's when you bring out the bad wine is on day four, five, and six. When nobody's going to know the difference. So this is pretty scandalous. And he takes it out and goes, Whoa, this is like the $300 bottle stuff. This is really good. And can you imagine Jesus just standing back in the corner going, oh, jeez, this is great. And he's just watching the whole thing unfold, and nobody knows that he had anything to do with it. It turns out, you ever thought the Bible was irrelevant and doesn't still happen today? Check this out. I saw this on Facebook the other day. Jesus is still doing this. I mean, he's everywhere. You've you, you gone to your local grocery store. This happens all the time, right? Check it out. I Go to your water aisle and just see, okay, Jesus is up to his old tricks again. There he is, right? Some of you are like, man, I need to go to that grocery store. Buy a 24-pack of that, right? Who, Who is this God? What kind of a Jesus would do this? A Jesus who's not really so concerned with everybody's opinion, and he's a lot more concerned with you knowing right here this morning that nothing is impossible for him. He takes the water of your life and turns it into something so much better. That he turns water into wine. I can do the impossible with ordinary broken things and people. How many people do you think at this wedding had pretty much said, well, this is the way it's going to be. You know, know, I know how this ends. We're getting, the tap, you know, is empty. We're getting to the bottom of the barrel. I know how this ends. The best is in the past. And Jesus says, unless I'm there, unless I'm invited to your party, unless I'm in your life. And I would imagine (laughs) Jesus is standing back, just smiling at this whole thing, knowing that the disciples are so amazed, and he's thinking the same thing that maybe you are right now, is we think, man, my life kind of feels half empty, and I'm kind of at the bottom of my barrel, and we often think, well, the best is in the past, or "I, I know how this goes, I've pretty much settled on the fact that this is how it is. You're kind of like this guy up here, right? I know the whole church thing. I'll come here down on Ingersoll and I'll come in. They're pretty nice people, although they're kind of weird. And I'll get my coffee and I'll get my donut hole. I'll come in. We'll come, sing a couple exciting songs. John will give, hopefully, non-boring sermon and then we'll stand up and we'll go home and we'll do it all over again next week. I know how it goes. I know how the small group thing goes. I know how the Bible study goes. You get in the living room. It's really awkward. You talk to a bunch of people you don't know. You have to share your feelings. I'm not really big on that. You fill in the blanks and you go home. I get it. I know how the whole serving thing goes. Been there, done that. I know really, John, the reason you ask everybody to serve and get involved around here is because you just want everybody to be busy and yada, yada, yada. I know how that goes. Unless you're the woman that came up to me and said a few weeks ago, she said, I've been going to church for 20 years and for the first time in a worship service here, I discovered the love of God in a very real and personal way for the very first time. I'd been a full-time churchgoer and a part-time follower of Jesus my whole life. Or you're the middle-aged man that said, I am never going to go to one of those men's small groups. Isn't that an oxymoron, men's small group? I'm never going to one of those. And he goes to one of our groups, hasn't missed a week since. God shows up, rocks, this unconventional God shows up, turns his water into wine. He has no idea what hit him. And now he's like, I build my entire week around men's group. I wouldn't miss it for the world. It's the most important, one of the most important things I do in my week. Or you're one of the dozens of people that came and helped build this building and serve the people that said, oh, "I'm so busy. Life is so busy. The last thing I have time to do is serve." And you're one of those people that said, "Ever since I started serving, the joyometer in my life just went poof, through the roof." The people with the most joy serve. Where you serve is going to feel like family. And now it's just a regular discipline, a rather routine of their life. Take it a step further. They said the best wine is in the past. Some of you that are nearing retirement or toward the back third of your life are saying, I bet my best years are behind me. Maybe you've been married for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you've pretty much settled on the fact, I think the best years of our marriage are probably behind us. We're just kind of holding it together for the sake of the kids right now. And Jesus says, I brought out the best wine last. What makes you think that your best years aren't ahead of you? Some of you are saying, this addiction, this struggle, this ugly habit, this sin I have, that's the way it's going to be because I know this is how it always goes. And Jesus says, no, it's not. Not when I'm at your party. i will take your water and turn it into wine. We have a highly, highly unconventional God. Highly. I love this quote that I heard. There's this pastor named Derwin Gray, and he has this quote. I'll throw it up on the screen. It says this. He says, I would rather be accused of expecting God to do too much than to be satisfied with a mediocre life. So I just want to ask you, like, what's your expectation when you come to worship every week? What's your expectation when you take a class or when you do a Bible study, when you study God's word, when you're worshiping him? Is it, oh, I just, I don't really into singing and I'm just kind of tired and groggy. Or do you show up here every week saying, the God of the universe is here and he can turn my life right side up and he can change me from the inside out and nothing in my life is impossible without him. This is the God that turned water into wine and I'm worried about work tomorrow morning? It puts everything in perspective. It puts everything in perspective. Your past, your present, your future. Nothing, nothing is impossible for him. That's one of the things that Jesus is trying to show us. How big are your prayers? Some of you have been Christians your whole life and your prayers are like this. Because you think God is like this. This story, Jesus, I want to blow up your little box that you've created. How big are your expectations? But at the end of the day, you have to understand, it wasn't just the quality of the wine that gets highlighted in the story. It was the quantity. Yes, Jesus is approachable. Yes, Jesus is highly unconventional. But there's one more aspect to his personality, and it's this. He's extremely extravagant. Extremely extravagant. extravagant. There's plenty of ways that Jesus could have done this miracle. He could have, you know, filled one of these, just one of the jars up halfway. Jesus could have got a little, you know, Dixie cup or styrofoam cup out of the kitchen cabinet and say, hey, refill for you, sir, but not for anybody else. He could have just kept it to a minimum and done just enough, but he didn't. Picture it again. Six stone jars this size overflowing. As John says, I love how he includes this. It's in the Bible. Filled to the brim. He didn't have to say that, but he did because that's the kind of God we have who wants to fill you to the brim if you're feeling empty this morning. Filled to the brim. Do the math. Six jars, 30 gallons, that is 180 gallons of wine, which would be the equivalent of 908 bottles of wine. Extravagant. And some of you are thinking, oh, Jesus, isn't that a just..." A little bit too much. I mean, it's alcohol. It's kind of a sensitive, touchy subject. And yes, it is for some people, and we don't want to be insensitive about that, but it's in the story. Jesus, that's a little bit too much. It's a little scandalous. Don't you think it's a little over the top? A little extravagant? And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly it's extravagant. Because you thought that this story in John chapter 2 was about wine. And Jesus says, don't forget, three years later, I'm sitting with my disciples on the night that I was betrayed, with a glass full of what? Wine, filled to the brim. And he looks at them and says, This is my blood shed for you. This is my life. Everything, like to the full, to the brim, overflowing with love for you. I'm gonna give everything all of my blood, all of my life for you on that cross so that you could know that my love for you is extravagant. It is absolutely extravagant and I have to imagine when he's saying that and and him holding that glass full of wine, the light bulbs are going on for the disciples going, wedding in Cana, wedding in Cana, wedding in Cana. Do you remember, do you guys remember when they, it's it's like this and they're making that connection and Jesus is going, yes, Extravagant gift. Extravagant love. Extravagant love. Oh, now it's starting to make sense. It wasn't just about the wine. It's about you. It's about knowing that his love for you has no limits. I love how 1 John chapter 3 says, let me read this for you. See what great love the Father has lavished On us that we should be called the children of God. Last time I checked, the word lavish, one of my favorite words, means to expend or give in great amounts or without limit. Without limit no matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've been, any of those things, nothing is impossible for him. His love is extravagant for you. And could it be that in this simple wedding story at the beginning of the gospel, we have come crashing in to the extravagant love of Jesus? And in this little story, he's pleading with you this morning to go, this isn't just a fun little Bible story. Some of you think oh, I don't know, I have about this much love for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I have this much love for you about this six times over to infinity. Some of you are living like, Jesus has this much love for you. And he says, no, 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 no. Remember the whole wedding thing in Cana? That was for you. Don't miss it. Some of you think, oh, I know the drill, John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Of course he loves the world. He has to. He's God. Do you know that he loves you? You. Yeah, the whole whole water and wine gag, Jesus says. I'm looking right at you, brother. I'm looking right at you, sister. Don't miss this one. Without limit. My love for you has no boundaries. Without limit. Have you received it? I mean, receive it all the way in. With all your past, with all your sin, with all your doubt, with all your shame, with all your insecurities. Some of you feel like I got this much love. Jesus says, I got a lot more where that came from. Overwhelming amount of love. Sometimes you just need to receive the gift. And that's what a young man did whose name is Ethan LaBearge. He's a member of the U.S. Army. And he receives an extravagant gift of love. Ever wonder what Jay Leno's been up to? You might be surprised. Take a look. So there's that moment for the young man where Jay said, It's yours. And I'm sure in his mind he's saying, Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? It's yours. Like he couldn't accept it. And here's the thing you and I watch things like that, and we have no problem crying or cheering when somebody else gets something that they don't deserve. There's a fancy church word for that, and it's called grace. And yet, when it comes to you and I and looking at our lives and the things that we've done, when somebody tries to give us grace, we're like, oh, no, 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 I don't deserve it. And Jesus goes, that's the point. You never will. Jay puts his arms around the guy and just, America loves you. Like, I'm just sure how his heart longed to hear those words. Can you imagine the loneliness and and the long time away from home to have somebody say America loves you? (laughs) Some of you are just, it's too good to be true. I I can't accept that kind of love. And some of you are thinking, oh, you know, John, I haven't gotten a car. (laughs) Nobody's given me that kind of gift. You've gotten something much better. It's available right here for you this morning. Something that'll never grow old, something that'll never rust out, something that you'll have forever. And that's the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, who comes to you in this miracle today and says, this is for you. This is for you. Something much better, something that will last forever. And he invites you to receive that love this morning, maybe in a brand new way, and to learn to walk with him and to learn his personality, my challenge for you this week is to read the Gospel of John and discover Jesus for who he really is and wants to be in your life, a God who loves you unconditionally and a God who always, always, always comes through, whether it's at a wedding or whatever's going on in your life this morning always comes through, and all he asks is that we look to him, that we come to him, and we say, Jesus, I want everything that you have for me. It's for you. Receive it. Amen? Let's stand and respond, and let's sing and worship to this God that has everything that we need. Let's sing it out at the top of our lungs, not worrying about what anybody else thinks. Let's worship him, God who has everything in his hands.